0: The DSR Listener Survey is now here. Your voice matters and we want to hear it, so please take a moment to fill out the survey and help us make our podcasts even better. You can find a link to the survey in the show description below.
1: Thank you. This is Words Matter with Norm Ornstein, we've got the votes and screw the rest of you, and Dr. Kavita Patel.
2: These might be some of the smaller moments, you know, with all the bombshells. Didn't catch people's eyes. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of Words Matter. We don't often have guests on our pod, but today we decided, actually for a while now, we've been trying to get uh, one of our favorite friends on and off the pod um, Dr. Ben Miller. And before I do, do a bit of a longer intro, I'll just say that this is kind of a special podcast that we're doing off sequence. And er- therefore, we're not going to have a members section or this section, we're just going to do a, a, a kind of a broad and friend friend conversation that everybody can listen to. And we encourage everyone to listen to that Norm and I felt were It was a pretty important time in our country. I'll be honest, when we wanted to reach out to Dr. Miller, it was really after October 7th, and he was like one of the first people we thought of to just help us think through how to process what's happening. Sadly, um, the events of the last several weeks, including the most recent mass shooting, and I say most recent because there was another one yesterday, just had less media attention in another part of the country. Unfortunately, there are too many of these events that are happening on United States soil. And that combined with what's happening geopolitically, Ukraine, Russia, Israel, what's happening in parts of Asia, South America, unfortunately, it's only underscored the need for somebody like Ben Miller. So I will start by saying that I've known Ben for I think, both Norm, you and I have both known Ben for several decades now. He's a an incredible psychologist and leader in the space of mental health, mental health policy. Actually, I'll go broader than that and say primary care and mental health because um, when I first met him, I accidentally thought he was a primary care physician because I got to, in, to know him through the American Academy of Family Physicians. And that's actually how Ben nestles himself. He's a very um, primary care focused person and has been an advocate for all things kind of community well being. I just want to call out. He has one of my favorite. Um, it's a it's a Substack, and it's 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 called Mental Fighting the Fragmentation of Mental Health, One Policy at a Time. And I encourage everybody to if you're not on Substack, to go to Substack to look him up and subscribe, and forward it to your friends. Um, Dr. Ben Miller, who has had a number of titles, but I think the most important title is, I would say, kind of community advocate, and somebody who we often, I personally, and I think Norm and I both lean upon during times of crisis. And I'm going to just say, welcome, Ben. I know, Norm, you may want to also offer, we're going to have a free ranging conversation. There was no script. This is not scripted. And I look forward to reading your Substack. But as of late, I feel like it's been even more important uh, now more than ever. Ben, thank you for joining us.
0: Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me,
2: Norm. I know you and I have spoken about how um, I would like to. I have so many questions for Ben, um, and I have so many like kind of I I don't. I want to say needs from uh, what we could benefit from Ben's intuition. Ben, I know Norm and I, in talking before this, really wanted to have you on so that we could try to learn from you. And I know you don't have all the answers, so I know that's not what you're here to do, but I did mean it when I say that I personally, and I know many do look to you personally, and I look to your sub stack for that advice to kind of keep us moving forward. How do we move forward? And, and what advice have you been using in your own family? Because I know that this is coming up probably every day at the dinner table, at the breakfast table.
0: Yeah, thanks, Kavita. And thanks to you, Norm, for having me on. Th- these are hard conversations to have, but I think they're important ones. And the key theme that I'll keep going back to here is that we have them that avoidance, especially when it comes to things that are as traumatic as what we're witnessing happening in Israel, as what we're seeing happening in our own country with the shootings, avoiding that stuff does not lend itself to helping us uh, heal and move forward. So a couple of things, and I you know I just I'll be very personal for a second. I mean, this morning I'm driving my fifteen year old to school and listening to the radio, listening to NPR, and they're describing these horrific stories that are happening you know, from Israel. And it's just gut wrenching um, to the point where I felt like we're absorbing too much negative information right now. We need to just take a pause. So we paused it. And, and me as my own, you know, this is my professional background. I just took a breath, just took a deep breath. And I was like, this is too much. Like, how could you go as a 15 year old go into school thinking about all the stuff that's happening in the world, just be okay to go and write an an essay on something that's not even relevant to the loss of life or not even relevant to the things happening in our our communities. So I, I think the first and probably most important thing is to acknowledge that we have feelings associated with these huge events. And Kavita, remember, the backdrop of a lot of this stuff is that we were already witnessing life expectancy on the decline. We've got drug overdose deaths that are through the roof. We continue to see things go in the wrong direction. And now we're just faced with more just this um, senseless loss of life and how, how we manage that as a country. I, I think by talking about it and having conversations like this, it keeps it from being something that we become desensitized to. It makes it an issue that we have to address, that we have to talk about. Because when we become desensitized to it, nobody—it it almost like creates this um, inaction where we are so used to another shooting, um, so used to war that we just kind of say, "Well, that's the way it is," and that is not acceptable. That is not acceptable.
2: How how do we? So, I one I think that a deep breath, like we can all. I do this a lot with my kids. I'm like, let's all just take a deep breath. But it's more for me, I think, than sometimes my own family. Um, a couple of things and I know we're we're gonna try to uh make sure that uh we we don't wanna make this about it it would be a fool's errand to try to start to piece apart right and wrong and who and this and that. I think that one of the things I look to you to is like you just said, like acknowledging it how do you recommend having conversations? I have found it been, um, and it's, it's on the topic of, and let's actually focus on this most recent topic around the shooting in Maine. And, and I know that you've written thoughtfully about advocacy around mental health support and community advocacy. You've talked about gun control. It feels pretty exhausting to have these same conversations over and over and over and over. And we just, um, Are learning about like the most recently elected Speaker of the House, whom I'm not going to look to to make any swath statements about gun control. I think that there's even been like you know interviews of some of the there was a Republican legislator in Maine who said I got this wrong and was very humble, and that sounded like a great signal. So Ben, what is a productive way to take this? I would say complete lack of like utter lack of faith in like policy in the process. And these personal emotions you describe and, and moving forward, just even from an advocacy standpoint, we have a lot of listeners who are very engaged, very like civically minded. Our encouragement has been words matter, votes matter, people matter. What can we do to kind of avoid that feeling that I'm sure you have? Like nothing's going to change it's just going to all be hopeless because it's just going to repeat itself and nobody cares. I'm, tell me if I'm wrong. Is this something you feel at times too?
0: <laughs> I, I do feel that at times. And I, I think I feel it more as I've gotten older. It's, <laughs> it's uh, I don't know if it's cynicism or what, but, you know, growing <laughs> up and having, I, I grew up in politics. My grandfather was a local county commissioner in Tennessee. And I remember having these very, you know, and discussions around what policies needed to be changed with the county mayor, with the city mayor, with the city council. And it all felt like we were working towards something, but our ideological differences were so small that it didn't take much for us to compromise. And then in the age in, that we live in, and you all have talked about this stuff you know, so eloquently, I mean, we amplify those small little pieces that used to be just almost non-issues to make them huge issues. And that makes it really hard for us to find a way forward together. So um, in graduate school, I'll never forget, one of the most powerful lectures I attended was from a uh, a, a public health advocate. And he was talking about how if you want to get policy change, you use personal stories. Stories matter more than anything else. Stories matter more than data. Stories matter more than anything. The problem is, Kavita, um, is that we have so many stories now that I worry that it has lost its power in some ways. It's almost like um, we can't believe the data because people spin it. We can't believe the stories because we have so much of them and there's 16 different versions of the same story. So it does make it hard to get back to your question on how to have hope and faith that things can change. But I, we have to. And I think this is where I look to you all too, because we are the leaders in this moment, for better or for worse. And if we're not able to instill hope in the next generation that things can change, if we're not able to instill hope in the current generation that we have to do more to fight for change, then, I mean, I think this experiment known as democracy and all these things that we have in this country begins to fall apart. It begins to erode. So going full circle to the mental health side of this, when you lose hope and you embrace despair, that's when nothing goes right. That's when we see people turn to cope with life through things that don't help them. That's when we see things like suicide rear their ugly heads. So in this nation with what we're facing, I feel like we have to instill that hope, but we also have to like be a little bit gentle on ourselves because we're absorbing more information now that is toxic and negative than we ever have before. And if we don't take care of this, it doesn't matter how big my vision is or how much hope I want to try and instill, I'm probably not going to do a great job at it
2: yeah norm if you don't mind like uh, maybe i have more questions for you ben but norm your thoughts and kind of how and and we're folding these the two issues are obviously very different but it's more about this moment of kind of grief and time in more of a kind of a conversation about stepping away from media i'm going to ask you ben in a a bit about that uh, because i know that some of the best advice i've given myself is like you need to walk away doesn't mean avoiding it, but I'm going to ask you about your thoughts around social media and just what to do in these moments and also what to do with children. I'm, my own son, eight years old, same, I mean, we are listening to the same NPR time chalk track probably at the same time, all things considered. And my son's like, I can't, he's like, there's just all, he said, literally, there's always a story about a war. He's like, is this a war that we're going to have to fight? And I said, well, we're, you know, that's hard to answer because we are fighting it. And Yet we're also not fighting it from his perspective. And so, Norm, what are some of your thoughts as this is both deeply personal and you're watching the country also kind of going through this every single day before October 7th since um, since Maine? It it, it just I feel like since Sandy Hook, I've been numb, if that's fair to say. And it's not because Sandy Hook was so special, but I lost faith at that point in time somehow. Um, Norm, your thoughts and questions for Ben or comments.
1: Well, you know, as Ben was talking, uh, there were a couple of things that occurred to me. One is, um, in a tribal environment, stories don't matter so much, because the stories from people in the other tribe are going to be discounted. Uh, And that's, I think, as big a problem uh, as any that we have right now. Uh, And what I'm seeing, even partly related to that, is a dehumanization. Uh, out there, they, this uh, the sense of empathy towards others. Uh, you know, of course, there was a little bit of that uh, with the shooting in Maine, and it became such a major focal point. But then we saw, you know, even from uh, the new Speaker of the House who whose reaction to it was uh, first, the standard for people who are pro-gun, Uh, This is Not the Time to Talk About It, um, which was an attempt to uh, attach himself to the empathy for the people who had died. But of course, it's exactly the opposite. It's phony. But then it was, what we need to do is pray. And of course, it's also attached to um, a sort of series of false narratives, uh, false stories about what kind of problems we have. And I will say I was struck with a press conference after the shooting where uh, Susan Collins, the senator from Maine, and Jared Golden, uh, who's from Lewiston, uh, you know, 38,000 people and everybody knows uh, somebody who died in that. But Jared Golden saying, uh, I was against an assault weapons ban, but now I have to be for it. Which I found at one level frustrating, um, but also, okay, at least you're owning up to it. And then Susan Collins doing uh, Susan Collins, waffling about it, um, trying to deflect away. And it takes us back to another set of issues. It's not just tribalization, it's people who get entrenched in their positions. And no matter what happens in the world, refuse to respond to it or react to it or do anything about it. Um, And then, you know, we can relate that to what's happening in the Middle East. And here again, just this sense of dehumanization and um, a refusal to empathize. Um, Seeing the reaction by so many after the butchers uh, from Hamas went into Israel, uh, torturing babies, killing, uh, older people, uh, tying together a mother and a child, and then, uh, murdering them both, all of that. And a lot of people at at immediate, immediate reaction being to exult in this because it fit their own narrative. But then we see the same thing just more broadly. And it's partly what happens with war, but it's broader than that. I You know, one of the things I would want to ask you about, Ben, though, coming back to um, Maine, the NRA narrative, the narrative of those who are trying to deflect from every incidence of mass murder, gun violence is, and this again was the Speaker of the House, but also so many others, um, is that it's all about mental health. Um, And it drives me up a wall Uh, because uh, it seems, uh, first of all, pretty obvious that every country in the world has problems with serious mental illness. I have not seen any evidence, and Ben, I'd like to have you address this, that we have a worse problem with serious mental illness than countries in Europe or Asia or Africa or anywhere else. But somehow we're the only ones that have uh, mass murders going on. Uh, So that to me is kind of like a double blind study in some ways. Uh, But, you know, talk about that phenomenon and the danger that it poses to you and uh, the three of us and so many others who are trying to find ways to deal with these problems of those who have these serious brain diseases.
0: Yeah, thank you, Norman. so much. I, I wish we had like six hours to talk about this stuff today. Let, let's just get to the issue of of mental health and guns for a second, because I, I do feel this is the perennial issue, and I can't tell you the number of times that I've had to go into the media, write something, refute a local conversation at a coffee shop about this very topic. And 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 I want to I want to try and approach it a little bit differently with you all because you, you're you're my friends, you're my colleagues, you have been on this. Uh, journey with me for a while to try and address mental health. And I want to address it differently because I feel like now um, the public is willing and able to understand mental health differently than it has before. What we can understand is how unfathomable somebody can go and do something like this. So we're always looking to provide some explanation as to how someone could go and shoot up innocent people. That is always our explanation. And so when we are looking for those explanatory models, those mental models, we go to the things that we most often don't understand, like mental health. Well, we say it must be a mental illness because that helps explain how somebody could do this. But that's just factually incorrect. And and I think it gets to these issues that you're pointing at. It doesn't mean that someone who went and, and had, you know, these committed one of these atrocities didn't have some underlying mental health at some point in their life. We all do, Norm. We all do. and But blaming it on that is inconsistent with the evidence. Blaming it on that is inconsistent with everything that we know about the science of mental health. There's no mental health condition that we know of where violence is a part of the diagnosis. None of them. So, again, we're full circle here. And, and I, I go back to the public because we're dealing with, like we did with COVID. We have to confront our own mental health when we were sheltering in place. We have to confront our own mental health when we're with our eight-year-old in the car listening to NPR, okay? Those are very real issues that we must acknowledge and own. Just because we're going to struggle does not mean that we are going to go and do something to harm someone else. So separating these issues is, is foundationally important. And I'll say one more thing, and I'll be quiet on this one. But if we're going to blame mental illness, if we're going to put it on the back of mental health, then at least do something about it. I don't think that we should because of the stigma that you you both are very aware of can be pointed out. But if you're going to say it was because of that, then show me what you're going to do because of that. Okay, I just I I find the hypocrisy here unbearable at times, but I also see that there is a need for people in leadership positions to be courageous, to stand up for what's right like you mentioned the representative that acknowledges some you know, wrong voting in the past and is rectifying that now. If you're going to put your money where your mouth is and you're actually going to stand by the solutions, then do something for mental health, even though it is not the contributing cause of what happened in these shootings.
2: How, and so just to build on that a little bit more, Ben, because this is a chance to, you've been fighting as we all have been, actually it's not even fighting, you've been advocating and speaking up in rooms around mental health. Can you go ahead and just tell us like what are some of the critical things our country needs to do? Let's shift actually to talking about some solutions because you put out amazing recommendations and you've been part of sitting in the room with legislators, bipartisan, on trying to come up with solutions. What are some things we could be doing now that we should be doing? We have audience, like I said, our audience is a very kind of policy oriented, active group. What could we be doing?
0: Yeah, well, let's start with the basics and then let's get into some of the complex. I'll do this really brief. The first is what we're doing right here. We're having a conversation. We're talking about it with our friends, with our family. The most important thing that we could do to advance mental health is to be comfortable to talk about it with each other. Seems like a throwaway, but I promise you, my friends, it is not we have to become okay to talk about our own mental health in whatever shape and form that looks like. So that begins at the dinner table with your family. It begins on podcasts like this. Okay. We got to talk about it and we got to embrace our own and acknowledge what it role it plays in our life. Second thing is that we have to get beyond these very structured ways of delivering mental health. And we've got to democratize mental health. We've got to liberate it from the system and put it to where people actually are. That means bringing care to communities. That means having our barbers trained in mental health interventions just as much as we do our wonderful primary care docs like you, Kavita. We've got to find ways that mental health is not just of the behest of some that have fancy degrees and write a bunch of books, that everyone knows how to help someone around them. I started that journey, as you mentioned, and as we were getting started here with looking at primary care, because I know most people are going to go to primary care for their health care. Well, why wouldn't we embed mental health there? I say the same things now about schools, about our faith communities, about our community-based organizations, about our YMCA's. Why do we not have mental health where people are? That is a huge paradigm shift in the way that we've thought about. The third, and, and then I'll be quiet on this one, that I think we need to do almost immediately is that we like to talk about our workforce crisis in the United States. We don't have enough people to do the things, right? Well, we have a lot of people to do the things they are just often in the wrong places. So we need to really embrace models and strategies that allow for a new workforce to emerge. It kind of builds off my second point. This new workforce is not just going to be licensed clinicians because we're never going to have enough of them, especially in the places that we need them. This new workforce is going to be made of people that are trusted community agents, assets in these communities that are already out there that have relationships with people. We need to really embrace public policies that support folks like that and see them as a complement to traditional healthcare models, to traditional healthcare pathways like the ones that you and I have worked in. So I think those are really—I mean, that's a lot, but I think that there's so much in there that could be moved on in public policy even today.
2: Yeah, and and just uh, the resistance to it. Just to be fair, the resistance to this is not in the form of you know. Are you, tell me, Ben, my sense and, and Norm, when when we've had conversations with senators, congresspeople, everybody nods their head, yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it has, is it money? What is the resistance? This is all like, to me, motherhood and apple pie, but am I wrong? <laughs> Why resistance?
0: Do, so do you, you and Norm will both remember this, but um, Paul Starr famously wrote in The Social Transformation of American Medicine, which is over my shoulder here, that the dream of reason did not take power into account. I, I think it's about power, Kavita. I think it's fundamentally about power. And that can go back to our conversations around on gun violence. But I think that fundamentally it's about power. And we've created an imbalanced system where the power is at one end of that system. And sharing that power is probably going to be the healthiest thing that we could do for our communities. But sharing that power also means that you have to give up control and people don't like that.
2: And that's it. That's what it comes down to. Yeah, you're right. Paul Starr did write that. So... Um... Norm, I want to give you a chance to, to ask, but I do want to get, if you don't have something kind of off the cuff right now, Norm, I did want to ask about media, the role of social media. I was very relieved to see um, the Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, who's done an incredible job just advocating, you know, whether it's isolation and lonely, social isolation and loneliness. And and I think he issued an incredible report on kind of social media well before uh, a lot of recent events, unfortunately. Him knowing that these recent events would happen almost to 100 percent predictability, um, and the role of social media, and we've also seen, uh, you know, 41 attorneys general plus the District of Columbia, who kind of went in on a suit against Meta, the parent company of Facebook, Instagram, etc., um, around the role of social media, particularly with adolescents and young people, and kind of damaging and mental health was cited in that suit as well. So. Ben, I, I do want, and, and Norm, ask any other questions, I do want to get kind of get your take on the role of social media. In by, by the way, a lot of the disinformation, I will say that what has erupted just around the Middle East, it has also erupted around Russia, Ukraine. It's been in every situation. The role of kind of social media, both for incredible destruction, as well as their potential goods. I mean, I think you and I would say that there's a social media that can actually build up our our lives and our character and keep us from feeling less isolated it's not the social media i see right now so ben any thoughts about what listeners can do practically and then also what we should be doing to facilitate mental health through social media
0: yeah well let's start about the practical and you you said this early on in in the segment but I think that there is a time and a place for us to recognize that too much is too much. And turning off the TV, putting down the pod, closing down the, you know, the social feed, whatever that might be, actually can help you in significant ways. Because there's only so much that we can manage if we're not managing it. And so the emotions that come from watching these horrendous in- images, the emotions that come from the constant barrage of information, good, bad, and ugly, it takes a toll on you. And our, our brains can only handle so much. They're very efficient organs. And so they are focused on you know making sure that we are focused on the one thing that we need to be focused on that moment. What, what social media has done, though, is it's almost retrained us to be focused on the next 10 seconds, the swipes, or the latest, greatest, most you know, out there headline that comes our way. And it just takes a toll on us. And then I think that's being demonstrated right now with our youth. I mean there's been great studies that have been done out there that look at the increase in youth mental health over the years and you can pinpoint it directly back to the advent of our phones and social media. It's it's it, it literally is a direct correlation that has been proven and proven and proven there are no other factors that contribute to this as significantly as the rise of social media. So, if you have a kid and you're listening to this, or you yourself just can't step away, I highly encourage you to set some limits on yourself. Boundaries are good. Boundaries are healthy. Boundaries help uh, help create a sense of of mental health and well being, and, and give us a place to be protected and safe. If you're with your kids, maybe limit how often they're going online. Talk to them about what they do when they are online. Share your own stories about what you do when you're online. I can tell you myself. Um, giving up one of the social media platforms that I used to be on prolifically has been one of the greatest benefits for my own mental health because I don't see the I don't see the trolls I don't f- hear the conversations that I used to have I'm not as entrenched in it and I can be more focused on the moment and those moments are usually the people around you who need you a whole lot more than getting another like or another click so take take a moment for yourself set some boundaries and see social media for what it is. Um, but recognize that it is having a very profound and negative effect on our mental health.
2: I look to Norm for, there are times, Norm, when you're very active and I'm like, wow, that's amazing. He has the ability to kind of be able to provide people, which is, again, to put a shameless plug for, I think you and I are finding that like sometimes the writing and, and you in the form of your newsletter, and I know you've been working on books and other 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 products Norm, how, how, what do you think about this advice?
1: So a couple of things about uh, social media and mental health. I do think that um, the uh, dehumanization that we talked about earlier is enhanced by social media, partly because there's uh, the comfort of anonymity for people. They can unleash the worst parts of themselves. I see this a fair amount but it's also that the bullying and the other things that happen um, get amplified dramatically with social media. And I think that's clearly added to the problems that we have with youth mental health. Um, It was exacerbated dramatically during the pandemic where people were inside and probably using social media more even than they might have uh, otherwise. Um, There also is a, you know. A bright side to this: um, some of the things, the, the level of empathy that I see out there. Somebody gets into a really bad situation; it gets uh, out on Twitter. People, GoFundMe campaigns that help people out. You uh, get uh, people that you know only through social media who end up with cancer or other problems, and that gives us ways of connecting to them and suggesting that there's a larger community that cares, but the dark side has now, uh, definitely, uh, overrun the, the better side of it. I wanted to get back, uh, Kavita and Ben to some of the things that, that Ben said about what we need to do about this. One part of it is that, um, as best I can tell, uh, the overwhelming majority of incidents where people with serious mental illness, uh, commit, these terrible acts, is because they are untreated. That doesn't mean they have never gotten treatment. It may mean, as I suspect was likely with the case in Maine, of somebody who may have been in a uh, hospital or a facility for a week or two and then got booted out um, without getting uh, anything other than a cursory uh, examination. And we have to do more to make sure that not just that treatment is available, but so many of these instances also involve those who are unaware that they're ill. Uh, and, uh, you know, these are larger questions that we as a society uh, and policymakers need to grapple with uh, because they involve questions of civil liberties, um, but also where you can find ways to provide treatment for people. Uh, The other part of this that I just think we cannot emphasize enough is the guns. It's one thing if somebody uh, is going to go on a rampage and has a knife, you know, horrible things might happen, but they're going to happen to one or two or three people, not to 15 or 20 or 30 or 50 or more. But the second part of this is the suicide uh, element that The more guns that are available, the more you have suicides. And what we know is lots of people, especially young people, uh, may on impulse attempt suicide. We know large numbers of them who fail, who are appalled afterwards at what they had done. Um, But if you have a gun, you're not likely to have a mistake uh, that ends up where you can then decide that this was just a big problem, mistake on your part, and you're going to try and get treatment and help yourself, you're dead. Uh, And until we start to do something about guns, we're just going to repeat this horrible history over and over and over again.
0: I mean, I I, I could respond to that for a long time. And so let me just comment, Norm, a couple of things. One, I do think that we are failing people with severe mental illness, and I want to take that conversation away a little bit from the conversation around guns and gun violence, because I think when we see what's happening in certain parts of the country, we're watching states that have typically been more progressive move to embrace more conservative policies for severe mental illness. And, and I think the evidence would say that this doesn't necessarily work. We need to consider other things that are more community-based, that are more um, integrated than just simply putting somebody uh, in a hospital against their will. Though I do agree, there are a lot of people out there that don't know that they're sick, but there are also a lot of people out there that are just sick and not getting what they need. And what they need is something much more um, comprehensive than what we're giving them. Second thing, which I, I just, this is a hard one to talk about, but when you look at the data around mass shootings, most people have some warning signs in their background. It's rarely mental health or an issue of mental health. It's something else that is a warning sign. And there, if we're not going to do anything about the issues of guns, then we have to do something around, well, how do we protect you know, ourselves and the communities from the people that have the guns that have warning signs? And this is where we get into long policy conversations about extreme risk protection orders, red flag laws and their effectiveness and where they work. I will tell you they work in preventing suicide, which is something that you brought up. I mean, half of all suicides are you know, attributed directly to a firearm. But if you're at risk of dying by suicide and we can protect you from that, from you know, having some extreme risk protection order or red flag law, then we can keep you alive, keep you alive enough to get the help that you need. This is the dream. And so I realize what we're doing, if you're listening to this today, we're weaving together extremely complex issues into one narrative. And that's hard to do. But the thing is, and Kavita, you know this better than anybody, these are interrelated issues. You know, how we as a community take care of each other. How much, you know, frib- freedom, liber- liberty, and democracy do we embrace versus how much do we control or regulate? I mean, there's so many issues here that take us um, into another podcast probably. <laughs>
2: I think you're right that there's no, uh, unfortunately, fortunately, there are a lot of paths forward. Unfortunately, we will continue to get kind of tested, pressed, tested, pressed. And it's, I think you've kind of taught me, it's like that resilience. It's, uh, and it's exactly why we need the policies that support this, this kind of, everybody talks about like the policy scaffolding. It, it actually started with, you know, a fight you and I, like, you know, have been trying to kind of uphold around just basic access to care, right? You can't, can't have these conversations that seem polite and erudite around mental health workforce, et cetera, when there's just a basic access problem. And and I know that's part of the impetus. We worked on the Affordable Care Act, and then we've done a lot of other things, but okay, we still don't have that, not quite cracked, but we're getting better at it. And then how do we push this forward and and talk about all the important issues including gun control, I think that as we've talked about social media and guns as incredible public health safety issues, like how does that actually translate into our version of an operation of warp speed, right? We were able to do hard things around the pandemic. We know that, right? You and I have talked about flipping the country from in-person to virtual literally overnight, literally overnight. And I know you've been part of this catalyst of how do we think about integrating mental health into all settings? And leveraging telemedicine where appropriate. So, I think that we can do these hard things. We have to be able to push and we have to kind of push the noise out. So, let me close. I know we, we could spend six hours. I know that you're part of some both international and national conversations. Ben, let me stop. Um, let, let me help close and then I'll give Norm the last, last word. Um, just as a commentary, Norm, if you don't mind. So, to Ben, to you, I wanna ask you to close with just some like, Take away, you know, what are a couple of things people can do to get smarter on some of these topics, Uh, whether it's kind of this misunderstandings between the role of mental illness and gun violence? What are some of the things we can do to get smarter on any of these topics? You've mentioned books you've read. I know you've written articles about this. Where can we go to get a little bit smarter on some of these topics, both on substance and on soul, (laughs) just soul preservation? Um, And then how are you going to? What what are some next steps? Where can listeners kind of get some of uh, what you're working on in terms of advocacy? I mentioned the Substack. Are there any other webinars you're doing? Anything else? I want to give you a chance to get folks plugged in.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Kavita. And, and thanks to you and Norm for just your, your ongoing leadership. It's, it's so wonderful to be connected with you guys today. And thanks for just a few minutes to talk about some pretty heavy topics You know, when it comes to finding trusted sources of information, I think because of the issues that we pointed out today, sometimes that's more difficult than it should be. Um, I can tell you that if you are interested in learning more about issues of mental health, mental illness, if you're looking to dispel some myths with your friends around gun violence, some of the most trusted sources are those that have been around the longest. Look at Mental Health America, look at the National Alliance for Mental Illness. Uh, These advocacy organizations remain some of the leaders in putting out good information that help people understand what's going on on a given topic. And I highly encourage you. um, Many states have their own chapters. You could probably find somebody local that's involved. Uh, Reach out, get that information, because it actually could be really useful when you're having conversations with friends. Now, I'm biased because I've lived in this world for too long and I write about these things all the time. But I do think the Substack that Kavita referenced does indeed leverage the evidence, the science, and put it into ways that just lay people can understand, just folks that aren't uh, nerdy academics like myself. In terms of like where we might be able to go to take action, and who are these other, or, or other organizations out there? If you're currently a listener and you're a different demographic than Kavita, Norm, and I, and you're in college, there are wonderful advocacy organizations um, that are all about increasing awareness for mental health, like Active Minds, Young Invincibles. You know these organizations are on the front lines every day trying to make sure that people are more aware of the topics of mental health. If you're uh, you know, an older person like myself and you, you've got a little bit more season on you and you're looking to get involved in policy in your state, um, I've been I'm the chair of the advisory board for Inseparable, which uh, Norm's been a part of too. Inseparable is pushing for major policies all throughout the country. Um, that is who we need to be looking to right now, people that are getting things done, that are taking action at both the local and a national level for mental health grounded by the evidence, pushed by stories, but really, truly, my friends, this is uh, where I'm most passionate, it's transformational policy. It's not just about tinkering here. This is like going big and thinking ways that we can transform how our country addresses mental health. So thanks again for the chance to be on today, and it's such a pleasure to, to see you both.
2: Thank you, Ben. Norm, I want to ask you to close this out.
1: Sure. First, so grateful, Ben, uh, to work with you and Kavita. Um, the three of us have managed to do a few things together that I hope have uh, moved the needle a tiny, tiny bit. Um, but what you do is so important. I would uh, double down on NAMI, the National Alliance for Mental Illness, uh, and say this, that if you uh, if you or family members are struggling at this point, um, There are resources, Uh, there's family to family, there's peer to peer, Um, these can be very helpful. And there are things that I didn't know about when we had our own family struggles. Uh, I'm encouraged in one sense that um, we are getting people talking more and more about their own issues or their own family issues. And there is not a family in the country uh, that doesn't have some of those issues. The more we talk about it, I think the more that we're going to find uh, politicians uh, deciding that maybe they need to do something more about it. And while there are no definitive or easy answers, there are answers out there, some of which we've uh, talked about today. We're not leaving this topic uh, with just this one podcast. Uh, We will be coming back to it again, and we will be coming back to it, I hope, with Ben uh, at another time.
2: I'll go ahead and close this out. And I just want to thank listeners. We did something that was a little atypical and that we kind of had a longer discussion and wanted to also just have it be open for the public to listen to. I think Ben is one of the most, I'd say a global kind of thought leader in this space. And unfortunately we've had to tap into it his expertise way too often, but I will say that our country is better off for it, having tapped into it. And I want to make sure that as, as Norm stated, I want to make sure listeners hear that we aren't going to let go of this thread. We ought, and Ben, I will invite you back because I want to frame as we're going into 2024, I actually want to frame the policy conversations very specifically Very nonpartisan in in terms of like, if people don't do the following things, we have just lost an opportunity to kind of help generations. And I think that's how you and I think about these policy issues and how Norm has advocated for them in, in literally living proof with his actions. So we'll invite you back for that. In the meantime, I want to thank our incredible producer, Riley Fessler. And I also want to thank our executive producer, Chris Cottenoir and the Deep State Network, which Words Matter is a pod for, and shared this episode, in particular this episode. Please share it broad please share it widely. And uh, to Ben's point, share it with anybody in any age group, including including young people, not just at universities, young people can handle hard things. So share it with the young members of your household that have been talking to you about some of these issues. And we look to see you in your inboxes um, in and around the November 5th and 6th. Take care.